Welcome to the Heart of Soul podcast, an exploration of who you are, what you are, and why you are, offering new ways to investigate age-old questions at the heart of you. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. Last time we talked about soul age and how it relates to people's general relationship to truth. Today in my interview with Stace Barron, we go smaller into commonly held societal truths. Topics include why we cannot change our outsides without changing our insides, the false notions of altruism, unconditional love, and self-sacrifice, and the importance of examining unconscious motives at the root of all human behavior. I remind you, as always, to please listen to this podcast from the beginning and in order. Thanks so much for listening. Well, welcome forward. That's the tagline for the Heart of Soul podcast. We're always welcoming you forward wherever you are. And I'm here with, of course, as always, Stace Barron. And we are going to follow up the conversation from last time where we talked about, if I can muster it in my mind, we talked about uh, truth relative to soul age in the domain of, well, we talked about some truths uh, relative to sainthood. And we're going to Mm -hmm. expand upon that and talk about that in personhood and sagehood today. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we talked early on in the podcast series here, if I remember correctly, um, how one of the things that, one of the reasons that humankind is in general is in in confusion is that it doesn't realize how um, soul age, that is number of incarnations we've had roughly in the last 140,000 years, affects how we view and process experience. Just like as we made many many references to um, kids um, have a whole other lens through which they experience uh, their reality than uh, a grown-up does. And it's and that's just a fractal of how in the bigger picture, our number of incarnations on earth condition us up to a certain point where uh, after we go around the block several hundred times here, we start to have more and more room around our conditioned truths. And that changes the way we relate to them. And changing the way we relate to them changes the how how, how um, mightily we grip our truths. Yeah. And that that is a function then of giving more curiosity and less statement position um, addictions about our truths. And so the world right now is rife literally rending itself uh, in, in many different directions at once, ripping itself up because people are over-attached, addicted to their position, their truth positions. Mm-hmm. Um, our culture wars are the best indication of that. Uh, they're the new religious wars. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah right, because the society is so secularized. Right. And now it's about pronouns and abortion and confederate flags or whatever we fight about that instead of gods sure yeah and in fact uh well maybe we'll get to that a little later there's another interesting sub um uh rabbit hole we could go down just with what you just said i've got two or three right here i mean this may completely derail us but something that's been on my mind a lot recently that i think fits here with soul age is um in the work that I do with people in the last week or so, occasionally it, it cycles around for me, but 
I was thinking about the the way in which people, most people by default, they want to stay the same person and have their outsides change. Yes. And mm-hmm. so they come to me, whether it's in a therapy type capacity or a business coach or whatever, and that's the, the implicit question people ask is, how do I stay the same person and have different results? And then I find myself in the position very, in rare cases, they, you know, and of course, as I learned from you, one of the best questions you can start with then is like, well, what don't you like about yourself mm-hmm. to try to find a door in to sure. the inside changing as related to the outside. But sometimes the, the, the person is just so, I don't even know what the word is, inexperienced as a soul. Right. Such mm-hmm. that there's no they literally can't even like mentally conceive of the idea of maybe the dead ending and the suffering that they're dealing with is a sign that they themselves need to change. Even if you keep, even if you keep painting that picture again and again, and that to me is one of the signals uh, of a younger soul, a less experienced soul. Wow. That exactly. I, I would agree completely. Mm-hmm. And l- let's take one step more meta and, and, and look at what you just said and the importance of it. Is that I? W- I just was recently um, um, uh, asked, and I'm I'm doing it, working with a person who wants me to uh, jumpstart and uh, to jumpstart and then bring lead the person com- uh, to completion of their inborn enlightened access to the pre-dual, non-dual. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one of my first questions was, what is it that you um, would uh, expect? enlightenment would give you that you don't have now <laughs> and so um that sounds like a trick question well um <laughs> good pickup it's and I, I acknowledge this to this person afterward um it's trick in the sense that i don't ask what you want from enlightenment oh, okay i ask yeah what yeah. it is that you think you will get in enlightenment that you don't have now of course, the that, Basho like two thousand years ago probably would have said absolutely nothing or something like yeah, that. Sounds like a cold. Sure. Of course, uh, it's a it's koanic uh, mm-hmm. flavored, I would say. And uh, and so um, after um, she uh, this person showed me, you know, a person wrote wrote down all the things that, well, this is what I expect. Well, I will get with it, and all of them implicitly had the personal I which is to be um, somehow subsumed, I'll just say it that way, in the most gentle way, subsumed mm-hmm. uh, uh, entirely in traditional enlightenment, um, that, that the, the personal eye disappears or is subsumed, like I say, but that, that um, uh, all the things that this person wanted out of it implied that the personal eye would still be there because the personal eye wants all these things from enlightenment. Right. You see, but and that—that's what you basically got. That elicits what was impedimentary to the breakthrough. Correct. Um, Correct. Brilliant. And but. this, of, this of course, uh, spun her gyros. Uh, she went into gimbal lock uh, in terms of uh, her mental body, which is exactly what it was supposed to do. <laughs> so, so the whole the whole pivot that soul age um, uh, informs uh, in this domain that we're talking about just right now is that the um it's what we want we want to have change but without changing the nature of the personal eye in some way ah that's a good way of saying it yeah you see and so you can only change your outside by changing the nature of your personal eyes 
um, operative link to how you process reality. Yeah, because it's the one with the intentions and the actions and the outcomes. So you want to change the outcomes without <laughs> changing the intentions, the unconscious motivations. I think we've talked about that plenty. Um, yes. I mean, it defies logic. Well, so you're the one doing your life. The results you have today are a result of who you've been. Yes. So how you can't divorce the two. Yeah, this um, you don't need a, a, um, a shit ton worth of IQs uh, rolling around between your ears to get this. And yet, That's what fascinates it, me so much. Even after you say uh, it to someone multiple times, they keep going back to right. this implicit, well, I got it. This is me. This is who I am. What do you mean? And I want yeah. things to be different. Exactly. The divorce between who, what, and why we are and the life we manifest is impossible. It's mm -hmm. utterly impossible. So you've got to change the agent who has created your life. You can't just change. Um, what you'd like to have happen and retain the you that created it in the first It's like place. going to a Chinese restaurant and ordering Italian food. It's like you <laughs> went to the Chinese restaurant and now you want it different. Like you made the choice to go to the Chinese restaurant. There's no Italian food here. Well, I want to tell you, I don't want to have to go somewhere else. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. You got to go somewhere else. <laughs> Great metaphor. Exactly to the point, right? So let's recap uh, what we mean by soul age for those um, uh, catching up still with uh, the program. Well, I want to say uh, one more thing about this, though, that, that I think is implied, but, but um, we didn't uh, say it explicitly, that goes along with soul age, that the, 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 the less experienced soul wants change to happen on their terms because they don't have a direct experience of the divine, even a little. So... It's oh, sure. That's mm -hmm. one of the things that I see in people. They they have an implicit belief that they are the sole author of their life. Mm -hmm. So if and and that's uh, I guess it's more atheistic, agnostic. But even if they have a belief based thing yes. in a religion, they sure. still don't see that as a co creation with the divine in any kind of active felt way. It's not a direct experience of being just an abstract idea. So the only way to um, really give up that I to change, there has to be some intelligence other than you. And that requires a direct encountering with the divine, because otherwise, what are you giving the local I up to? Really well said. And what, I, what I'm feeling here is the space that you're talking about, is that unless you have meta mm -hmm. to your local you, which of course, direct experience of the divine gives you. But um, without that, you don't have depth space. You don't have meta space to look at yourself mm -hmm. in the space accorded to, uh, to us, to our consciousness, by our consciousness being in, in, uh, inextricably linked to the um, divine. Oh, because that meta is a function of consciousness, and that consciousness is a function of the divine. Exactly. Right. Oh man, I never made that connection. So that absence of meta is actually a downstream expression of a disconnection from the divine. Yes, and and applies as you said, um, just as much to uh, rabid religionists who mm -hmm. only experience God through belief and faith. Right. So it's which it's is in the mind, is, not in the meta divine thing. Exactly, and so this is why um, it was something we didn't say last time is that uh, identity's view. Uh, relative to some of the truths we talked about um, isn't really um, livable 
until we get to a certain number of times around the incarnational block. Uh, and that's why it's so hard to bring identity out into the world, because if our range, our span, Joseph, is first lifetime here, uh, which some souls are doing as we speak, um, and up to about 450 lifetimes here around the block incarnationally, in that range, the, uh, the Earth averages about 200 uh, mm-hmm. or a little less of lifetime. So it's a, we would say in a tween phase, not right. even a teen, uh, it's tween to teen. Young, young a, teen. Uh, yeah. Young teen, yeah, um, stage. That's why there's still religionism, religionism still is um, rabidly um, uh, ensconced in our world cultures. Uh, once we get uh, to the true teen phase, uh, 200 to 250 uh, lifetimes, that's where agnosticism and atheism start to kick in because they you've been around the block enough to not take religious religions fairy tales seriously anymore. Mm-hmm. There's not, no alternative really, um, uh, unless you want to go to deism, like the founding fathers of the United States. God doesn't get involved in our in our world. Um, this is why the world is in such a mess. Because do you ever see a teenager's bedroom? Uh, Looks a lot like the United States. (laughs) Oh my God, exactly right. Right now, especially Mm. more ridiculously messed up uh, because it's founded on a set of principles that um, the rest of the world has been slower to accept the rights and and reality of the individual. That has its downsides in these phases because you can um, also use um, uh, focus on the individual as a way to um, block out uh, any um, community good or greater good. Uh, so it's a difficult phase. And this is why um, all the gang the kinds of gang things that happen in this stage and in, in teen phases uh, with uh, uh, impoverished um, populations on the planet, for example, especially in the United States. Uh, those kinds of things are exactly what happens when you, uh, when you have um, religions at war with each other. Um, instead of it um, being the turf of uh, the block uh, or three blocks of your um, of your city, it's my religion versus your religion instead of my turf versus your turf, right? Mm-hmm. So we we have a, a really um, um, we're going through a difficult phase right now, and and it's a mess. And if everyone listening take a breath for a moment i'm sure you've got you're drawn into the drama all around the world no matter which corner we look at it but in the, especially in the united states here we're going through a teen phase and there isn't much older uh, older wisdom out there and um, we'll talk about ancient religions not being being older but not more wise yeah. uh, um, that but it's, it's just a phase onto a a, um, a different uh, uh, d- domain ahead which is another whole rabbit hole we could go down. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk about how um, we talked last time about how soul age affects our relationship to truth. Now let's 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 deconstruct some truths um, across the span of of, um, of soul age, and uh, talk about how we that gives us some meta and some X-ray vision through why we tend to get so stuck in our lives and 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 challenging us to. Um, change the personal eye instead of just wanting to change the circumstances of the personal eye, mm-hmm. right? So um, in personhood, um, uh, uh, of course, uh, reviewing identity's position, this personal self is A, not an illusion, B, it is not originally sinned, 
and uh, see it's not something to get rid of or atone for. Uh, that this personal self is a fractal of the uh, divine in all of us and has always been made the poor child or the impediment to um, psycho-spiritual growth, uh, the personal I, our relationship to it, our personal story, our victim uh, victimhood to our personal story, whatever it is you want to say. And one of the linchpins uh, that, um, uh, that uh, is an effect of how much we bastardize and vilify the personal self is this well, an identity's offering uh, the inane um, uh, um, uh, concept and concept only it is of altruism. Now, when I'm not going to go on an objectivistic tirade here in defense of Ayn Rand, uh, who was the uh, most vocal um, uh, um, critic of uh, altruism in her novels and in her, in her philosophy of life, but there is something to it. She was onto something. And I'd like to offer how identity um, would say that your relationship or your conditioned attraction to sacrifice, altruism, and unconditional love is um, a function of very young consciousness and not even mature, not even mature teen consciousness. It works like this. Um, and this is a tough, this is a tough one for people because. Uh, it, it sounds like um, only the, the, the needs of the self, I'm implying the needs of the self matter, not the needs of anyone else. And that is the other side of the universe than, uh, than identity's position here. That's the continuum we're generally faced with, self versus yeah. other, which self versus is other. the problem philosophy and religion has been trying to solve for like 3,000 years. Um, identity offers that the um, millennial old needs of self versus needs of other is a complete um, uh, uh, construct and has no referent in the human race except to the degree we believe in it. A false dichotomy, you're saying. A false dichotomy, as philosophy would say. Mm -hmm. So um, this gets all sorts of people's scalps itchy. <laughs> um, and, uh, and whenever I brought it and is ripe for um, all sorts of uh, a loud loudness uh, in protest. So let's just offer identity's truth about altruism and try to show how it's a young, young soul's construct. And the way to do that most effectively is to uh, ask anyone in an audience that I've done for 30 years, someone give me an example of sacrifice where altruism, the need of the self is greater than the need, or the need of the other is greater than the need of the self. And to linked in religion, of course, that that's the algorithm of atonement to uh, offset your original sin is to give to others. Uh, one of the linchpins of that, right? Well, to the, serve well, other people's needs more than your own. The, the way you frame that is uh, even uh, kinder in a way, because, uh, but to saying the, the, making the other person's more than your needs, because the way most people will hold it is there's such a thing as a completely selfless act where the person, yes. you have no need, and it's all about the other person's needs. That's usually the first start with it. Well, okay, so let's start there since mm -hmm. you're the, um, it's on your show here. Let's start with there. <laughs> yeah. Selflessness uh, is an utter, it has no referent in the human condition identity offers. And it just, it will, it can be self-validated just by asking, uh, someone give me an example of a selfless action. 
Well, I give up uh, every cent I have and live under a bridge, homeless, and I give it all to charity is one of the answers that I get. Okay, so um, who is it that um, is served by giving all the money to charity So, and you wind up being homeless? All those other people, they're, they're the ones being served and I'm, I'm, I'm not caring about my own needs. Okay, so let's say that the effect of your decision, um, the object of your decision seems to be gaining the benefit while the subject of the decision is penalized in some way by choice, by mm -hmm. conscious choice, okay? Mm -hmm. So if I were to say, what's the benefit for such a person, the subject of this little um, circus, uh, <laughs> what's what's the benefit of to the person that offsets completely the fact that the needs of self um, offset or um, out, outweigh the needs of, of, of the person doing that self selfless thing? What's the gain for them? What do they gain there? Well, when you ask people this, they try to say that there's no gain for them at all, but it must mean that their values are such that they think other people should have their money rather than them. Right. Which means, okay. go ahead. So let's parse that. Uh -huh. So um, I just heard your mythical person here um, in delusion land about, about uh, altruism uh -huh. and uh, sacrifice. Uh, I just heard them say that I did it for the reason, uh, for the benefit of others, basically. And I'm willing to live with the loss of a benefit to myself. Okay, that's what I heard. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah. So I would simply say to this uh, mythical person, uh, mythical not only in their belief system, but mythical <laughs> in their value system, uh, which is different, a little different than belief system. And that is that if there's any benefit to you whatsoever, you can't, the decision can't be called selfless. Could you agree with that? Yes, yeah, sure. Okay, so if I were to suggest that there's a huge benefit to the person who gives away all their money and go, goes homeless, what, what might that benefit be? The good feeling they get from serving all those other people. In the very least, it did, this person did it to please themselves. Yeah. In that moment, and again, in that moment, altruism is utterly abnegated. I did it to make myself feel good. That's not what you were in touch with. You were in touch. That person was in touch with the good the other people were going to get. They will feel good. Mm -hmm. But what is lost in the altruistic uh, transaction, so so-called altruistic transaction, is that there is a benefit to the self yeah. in the very minimum that they feel good. Then you can't call it selfless. You can call it you can call it um, generous. Noble. Yeah, this is what noble. I say when I talk about this with people. It's like that doesn't mean there's not a thing as noble, courageous, generous, kind. Sure. It sure. just means that when you're doing all that serving to the other people, you're getting something too. Yes. What's the problem? Yes. Why is that so difficult? Why can't there be a win-win? Well, Why does it have to yeah. be selfless? And, and all that win-win um, is, is adjudicatable if we remember one of the uh, legs of the tripod of identity that we're responsible for the contents of our unconscious. The conscious 
even at the conscious level of, well, it makes me feel good to help others. That's at the conscious level. Um, but if you scratch the surface of that one, and anyone who does that, uh, and identity has the dharma to do this, it will gently invite the person to start uh, various and sundry ways to drop into what might be unconscious about their motive to become homeless, but in the benefit of giving other people lots of money in homes or however it, it shakes out. And invariably, you will find some wound of I'm not worth it, only people are worth it. Others are worth it, but I'm not worth it. That's, that's on the psychological level. If you're a religious person and won the lottery and wanted to give it all away and live, in a, live on the street, I would offer that um, you're giving it away is so that unconsciously God likes you mm -hmm. and uh, will let you into heaven. And we see a lot of this kind of stuff with like uh, firefighters. Um, it was a lot of that around the 9-11. Firefighters went into buildings and uh, service people who go into war. There's this idea of like they're sacrificing themselves so that we can stay free. Yes. And no, they signed up for service or there's no draft anymore. So even if they were drafted, they still had choices about what to do with that, as has been uh, in sure. the historical record. But sure. the, there's not a sense of um, uh, it's not that their service isn't valued or courageous or noble. It's right. just that they chose to do that. So if they're killed in the line of duty, then that's the destiny that they chose. Yes. And this is something. Um, uh, that we've not been helped by our world value systems to be responsible to our choices. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the unconscious, literally unconscious motives that cause us to attach to our certain value systems, right? There's uh, whether it's a fireman rushing into a building, um, uh, their life, uh, the, the person would say, well, look, that child's life that they're trying to rescue from the building is, um, is more important than their own. And, and identity would say, yes, that half is true, um, sort of. But who is making the choice that that person, that child's life is more important than, their, than theirs? Yeah. It pleases them to do so. And if you look at the backstory, they chose to undergo all of the rigorous training and to, you know, get the job and to take the job and to do the job well. There's quite a lot of buildup of self-choices Yes. Leading to that moment where they, quote, sacrifice themselves and do the 99th step after the first 98. It's just a logical <laughs> conclusion. Of course, you're going to put your life on the line. That's what you chose to be trained to do. Sure. It, it even it, this, this, what we're talking about here, what we're saying in a nutshell is that, is that we don't need sacrifice, selflessness, altruism, um, or unconditional love to make giving to others noble good and reasonable you know that, what i'm i'm also curious about um is, is uh the notion of sacrifice which came from in polytheistic times like if it wasn't raining enough on your crops you'd kill one of your goats to appease one of the gods to get it to rain mm -hmm. that's a deal that's a transaction. <laughs> it's a transaction. Yeah. So I, I've always wanted to, I've always been curious, like when did those deals, the mm -hmm. sacrifice of the goat or like in Aztec land humans, they did, and I believe in Hawaii here uh, in the native Hawaiians did human sacrifice, but those were all deals. They were, it was a quid pro quo. So when did our notion of sacrifice turn from a deal with a deity 
to pure altruism. I'm just doing it because I love you, God, and I'm selfless. When, when did that happen? Do you know? Yeah, it happened with the introduction of original sin. As I was going to say, Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In- Incan and Aztec and Inuit, mm. uh, uh, whatever these other cultures um, in the in the past, it was always a transaction. Uh, quid pro quo, pro, as you say, uh, they expected something back for their sacrifice. They lost something to gain something. Mm-hmm. But it, it only that beautiful, reasonable tribal orientation, which is very young souls, um, of course, starting out is tribalism is one of the early ways that um, uh, young souls need to have community to define self rather than older souls who, who, who define, who ha- need to have self to define community. Mm-hmm. It's a, the exact opposite uh, in our evolution. So only when original sin, uh, which actually started with Judaism, not, not with Christianity, um, it, it was an offshoot of Zoroastrianism. Uh, as, as soon as the monad came into our consciousness as a planet, uh, one God, uh, Judaism is the one, the Old Testament, um, the Adam and Eve story. Uh, right, because it was a very angry, wrathful God in the Old Testament, right? That is it, pretty it's Christian. Still, it, it still is an angry, wrathful God, a jealous God, yeah. a, a God who, who chooses certain um, uh, um, um, ethnic minorities as its pet favorites. Pl- it plays favorites, tests people by messing with them, like I believe that was the Abraham story and the killing of job the, job yeah, is a job. good example right so um orig- when once original sin got implanted and became uh inextricable from monad monism uh the one god <clears throat> as we move from polytheism and tribalism to monism uh uh this i would identity would offer that the notion of original sin is the deepest darkest um most erroneous and most tragic tragic um, concept humankind has ever come up with mm-hmm. because the idea of original sin says you are responsible for what someone else did yeah you are responsible even though um the adam and eve story um uh happened however many years ago five thousand years ago if you're a mm-hmm. born again christian or um maybe one hundred and forty thousand years in this current epic uh in our picture um, the Adam and Eve story said, uh, we disobeyed God. Uh, so they disobeyed God. Of course, the woman was, was of course, uh, uh, the cause of it. Mm-hmm. That was uh, the institutionalization of uh, patriarchy right there when Eve was blamed for um, actually trying to uh, get uh, Adam to man up mm-hmm. and uh, eat from the tree of self-knowledge, as it were. So, um that's when it all happened and started to go downhill. Sacrifice became unilateral rather than a bilateral transaction. And any gain that you had while you're infected in original sin must be deepening your original sin. You can't have gain if you have original sin. You have to atone for your original sin. Mm-hmm. And this basic dynamic, which is fundamental to, for example, conservative Judaism, conservative Christianity, most of the followers are, are really disconnected from the, re, from the repercussions uh, and the actual reality of this. It means that uh, you, you would, um, I, love this, I love this every single, I laugh every time Joe, Jill, um, when we watch uh, um, thrillers uh, and uh, movies, uh, Brie and I, I I'm, all, I'm just always just waiting for it. 
you know, the, the person's got a guy tied up oh, no. uh, and, uh, and the guy says, uh, tell me this or whatever. And, and the person says, no, I won't. And it says, and the villain brings over their wife and puts a gun to their head and says, um, uh, you will be responsible for her death if you don't <laughs> tell me this, this truth that I want, right? Right. Uh, and I'm not we're waiting for it, waiting for a scriptwriter to say, no, you will be responsible <laughs> for it because you're pulling the trigger. And the woman very often will say, don't tell him. Yes. And then they do anyway. <laughs> right. So it's like, um, would I want my wife not to be shot? Uh, of course I wouldn't. But first I'd have to school this, this low CQ villain, uh, low consciousness quotient, that um, what they do has no re re relationship to me whatsoever. It's all between them and them, not between them and me. I don't cause my wife to get shot. You, you pull that trigger. I don't. So that, that particular dynamic is so deeply ensconced, even scriptwriters can't get out of it. Well, it's and even more broadly, the, uh, you know, like the uh, bank teller with the gun to their head and, uh, you know, opens the vault. I had no choice. Yes. Well, no, you had two very bad choices, but, yes. but you absolutely had a choice. Human beings always have a choice. It makes me crazy. It is. And let's expand at one other level. Uh, uh, so, okay, so now we're in a spy thriller, uh, like a James Bond movie, right? And uh, I want to, the villain wants $100 million or else they'll, they'll um, uh, explode a nuclear device killing millions of people. Mm -hmm. And the villain will always inevitably say, those hundreds of millions that die will be on you yes. because you didn't pay the ransom, right? Mm -hmm. Same principle here. Um, this is so profoundly uh, an example of how low a CQ average CQ of the planet is that there's no exceptions to this. I'm waiting for the movie. I may have, we may have to make a movie, uh, a film, Joseph, um, with, uh, with uh, my, um, my uh, stepson who's in the business now uh -huh. uh, and, and show that example because original sin is based on the idea that Adam and Eve, it's based on the old principle from tribalism carried over into monism that the, that the, the children suffer the sins of their parents of the father. This is in tribalism. This is huge because everything is so collectivistically entwined with ancestors and direct family. Family's more important. Needs of the family outweigh the needs of the of the individual and in tribalism, collectivism. Uh, uh, the sins of the father are laid upon the child, and so if this, the original parents are Adam and Eva, then um, we're all paying the price for their disobedience to God. And the and but God who loves us gives us the solution, altruism, atone, oh. right action, right thinking, Service. or, good, or good, works, good works, Yeah. right? Good works, that's what Christianity displays, good works and um, right dogma. Uh, oh. Right now, <laughs> since Ronnie was president uh, here, uh, uh, um, uh, dogma has become the, the imprimatur of conservative Christianity, not good works. Um, oh, and right. Uh-huh. It's all dogmatic. It's all right beliefs, uh, right positions, and no negotiation, absolute truth, of course, as if any human being, much less a book, is written by humans. Uh, a really old book. Yeah, a, re <laughs> a really old that book uh, that may have been inspired by the deity that they believed in, but that, that's a false god. Uh, the, the Judaism worships a false god. 
Christianity worships a false god. Only young souls see it as the real god. And that's phase specific. Mm -hmm. So what we want to end up with here in this in these examples here that the truth of serve that the needs of self is a dark selfish narcissistic dynamic in most cultures of the world including a lot of psychology and philosophy not all philosophy but but a good share of it religious philosophy anyway um, and that and that that picture of things is a function of a young soul's lens early on in their incarnational journey. So at the same time, we can say it's phase specific. It doesn't mean it's right. Yeah. Just because you, just because you believe something doesn't make it true. And yet um, uh, younger souls are absolutely convinced that if I just believe in something and get others to agree with me, and all of a sudden a, a billion people on the planet agree with me, it must be right. Well, there's seven and a half billion of us now, and some of us have lived more than 450 lifetimes on this planet. And we would like to offer um, that an Uzi, as we've said many times, in the hand of a 12-year-old is just as deadly as in a 30-year-old's hands. So the we, won't, we wouldn't say that when I say that Judaism and Christianity uh, believe in a false god, uh, I'm not saying that that makes them bad. I'm saying I'm saying it makes them young, mm -hmm. and what Just they like do. Just like a child who talks to imaginary friends, it's like you know a five-year-old is talking to imaginary beings. We would say, well, that's completely fine and appropriate. But if they're still doing it when they're eighteen, we'd have some questions. Thorazine stat, <laughs> right? Um, so um, again, this is no um, uh, uh, elitism in elder elder pictures. It's just different. Includes more data sets. Includes different relationships to our data sets uh, in, in our way we process reality. So I knew a there's woman a in college who still sucked her thumb, like in class. Ah, interesting. God, you know, I see people every day sucking their thumb, only it's in the form of a cigarette. Uh, uh, yeah, how people, I, I could never, when I was a kid, I saw cigarettes like a straw and people were drinking uh, uh, smoke through a straw. Uh, into their precious breath, which is one of the most sacred things about us in the personal expressive domain, mm. to pollute the breath consciously, consciously with smoke. When smoke, smoke makes you tear up, cough, and uh, uh, now we know, of course, we'll kill a billion people in the next century. Just mm. came out that stat, right? So, um, when we believe something, we will form a position around it. When we form a position around it, we will uh, consider it absolute. When we consider it absolute, it's the death of curiosity. The death of curiosity is the death of the dialectic. The death of the dialectic, you cannot be, uh, you have to be dogmatic instead of um, paradigmatic. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, you have to be a demagogue rather than um, uh, um, a dialogue. That's all mm. you can do is pedagogue instead of dialogue. Pedagogue is also can be a verb um, mm -hmm. that way. I'm pedagoguing, by the way, you see. Mm. So um, this is this whole idea that uh, the truth, both of their God, the version of the God that they're worshiping, and the basic algorithm of atonement for original sin altruism, selflessness, um, sacrifice, unconditional love. We'll talk about unconditional love next. 
that yeah. these are these are all constructs that have no referent in the actual human condition. And so, so deep, like we were saying, in film and in books and in work. Uh, I remember um, uh, Netflix a while back released their company values on a slide deck, and it was on the internet. It probably still is. And one of their values is selflessness. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. So you're supposed to be, and people will say this in companies, you're supposed to leave your ego at the mm-hmm. door and come to work without that ego. Oh. Uh, and Does that come for the boss, too? Does that come for the boss, too? <laughs> what about the owners of the stockholders? Yeah, Should they yeah. have no ego egos as well? I, I tell you, I'd like to devote a podcast to business uh, and money someday soon mm. because uh, the whole idea of corporatism uh, the current uh, uh, thing we call corporatism on the planet was born in the early 70s when it was decided by, I always forget his name, the head of the Fed, um, Federal Reserve, uh, decided that um, that the charters Greenspan? of company, not, no, it was someone Greenspan. else, I think. At any rate, um, he said that uh, the new way of looking at things is, is for a company's mission, the company's mission changed from making good products and services uh, to um, increasing the value of their shares. Yes. Yeah. Early 70s. And that's probably was related to the fiduciary responsibilities now. I've I've actually learned something about this in the last couple of years that it's if if a if a CEO uh, who's an officer of the company makes decisions that go against the profitability of Mm -hmm. the company, they can be held personally liable. Yes. Even if it's the right thing to do, a moral thing to do, but if it doesn't actually increase the shareholder value, um, then they can be personally liable for that. They're going against their fiduciary responsibilities. We were just talking the other day that uh, um, with this person that wants wants help in their enlightenment path. Um, So I'm working with this person one-on-one. We both uh, shared to Brie, who's from Germany, my wife, uh, that uh, this is not the America we grew up in. Um, in so many different ways. Uh, it's an alien land. But let's get back to our track. Yes, um, unconditional so, love. Yes, unconditional love. Um, give me an example of unconditional love there, Joseph Mann. Oh, man. Okay, well. Come on. You know, become, become, uh, a lo- uh, uh, become someone you know what they would say. I was you just going to say, it. my mother, who still to this day <laughs> subscribes to the idea of unconditional love, uh-huh. Uh, interestingly, uh, just a, a couple hours ago, she called me to wish me a happy birthday a day early when my birthday is actually two days from today. But mm-hmm. uh, that's unconditional love, apparently. It's beyond the realm of dates and conditions. <laughs> that's a joke. Well, let's just let's just let's go semantic first. Okay. Uh, th- this this idea of unconditional love is so. What's the word? Um, ju- juvenile, and I say that with heartfulness, not not elitism. Uh, just like um, uh, believing a child uh, when they cover their eyes makes them invisible. Uh, yes, right, because uh, they lack object permanence. Mm-hmm. Correct, and and so they think that every the whole world they he, they disappear if every the whole world disappears. Mm-hmm. That's juvenile in the most innocent sense, and this is the way I'm using the word here. Uh, uh, that unconditional love, just semantically, this is the world of conditioning. This is the world of conditions. Give me one example of something that's not conditioned in this world, and I might be interested in what unconditional love might mean. 
Well, I get I get this a lot. I don't have children, and people will sometimes say, Joseph, if you had children, you would understand what unconditional love is. It's it mm-hmm. can't be described. You love them so strongly, so mm-hmm. powerfully, no matter what they do, you love them. That's unconditional love. Yeah, and how many examples do we have in our world of parents who suffocate their children with this so-called unconditional love? I've got to protect my child at all costs, right? Um, The cutoff, when Gibran says, set your children free, that they belong to life, not to you. Mm. Unconditional love is most of the time the culprit in the uh, active or passive abuse of children. So, unconditional love toward a child doesn't hold a lot of weight for me um, or for identity. I, I didn't expect yeah. you to go down that door, the the, the door I've heard you talk about uh, that is uh, just as valid is that um, a, a mother or a father loves their child because it's their child and that's a condition. Yes. They love. Uh, they just, don't love all of the children in the world the same amount. <laughs> exactly the domain I was going to next. Uh-huh. See, you're ahead of me here, bud. See, maybe you should. Maybe I should start interviewing you. you I've know? heard you talk about that. that would be funny. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you could do it. You could ask questions in a way that would dead end me and show lead me to where I can't answer any more smart questions. I that would, would never do such. A oh, thing. just as, just for fun. I, that would I, be fun. I wouldn't be loving you unconditionally if I. Oh, did Oh, I know. And then I could cry and play victim. Say you don't actually love me because you made me look bad. Oh, you see how many rabbit holes listeners Mm -hmm. out there this goes to. And again, this is being offered in the, in in, in the, in a, in a gentle sense of, come on, everyone, let's wake up. Mm -hmm. Not, not you're all stupid. That's Mm -hmm. not it. When I use the word stupid, I mean, S T O O P E D stooped, stooped over, stooped over. You're not standing to your full height. That's what I mean. When I say stupid, it's, it's just, it's wake. Let's wake up here. A parent loves their child more than other uh, is unconditionally because they're their their child. Uh, even that's that's on us. This is still semantic. Still semantic. Yeah. Um, there is no such thing as unconditional. Is there? Identity steps in and says, "Wait, um, might there be something we would call meta conditional?" Okay, I'm I'm sitting um, and I just uh, let's say I earned a thousand dollars for a week's work. Um, uh, with someone, um, it should be about ten thousand. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I agree. since identity doesn't uh, isn't out there quite yet, um, let's say I get a thousand dollars for a week's work, and uh, um, uh, a person I know uh, just uh, had a um, uh, is going to get evicted from their rental because they let's say they're living in New York and landlords are doubling. The rent um, uh, in lots of cases, and I have that. Ex- that I just got a thousand dollars. I didn't expect to have at the beginning of that week, and now I have it. And um, I, I want to use that medicant that 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 money for a, a certain project or something, and uh, something I need. And I hear this person's go- person's going to be evicted if they don't have the thousand dollars. I would I would sit back and analyze and feel, and not analyze in my head, but analyze in my heart. What, what means more to me in this moment? The person that's going to be evicted, my friend is going to be in, in, uh, evicted or the thing that I want with $1,000. I, I have no original sin running, uh, agenda running. I have no unconscious need to be liked or disliked or liked by God or disliked by God. Um, I have none of those. And I, it's strictly between me and existence and me and this person. And if I give them that money, um, 
I would call that, um, after a, a, a feeling into it over a period of time, a metaconditional choice where I acknowledge my condition, don't feel it's bad, don't feel it's worse than their need, it's equal, um, but I choose. I take the responsibility of choice and I give them that $1,000. That's not unconditional love. It's considered. It's coming from no original sin wounding of atonement. Atonement, I don't know what that means. I, can, I have to make atonement with my past mistakes, of course, but not with God. Uh, as we'll get to shortly, when I you, think. Uh, when you describe it, it's actually quite intimate with the conditions of the situation, not completely it's it's informed mm -hmm. it's heart informed right and to me meta, that example of a meta conditional transaction because i i acknowledge it's a transaction because i feel good about doing it it's not i for the exact opposite reason i say the same thing i want to do this because i choose to do this in my value system you need that more than I do right now, even though I was waiting to, you know, spend this thousand on this and this and this. So uh, it, it's an act of love that has no root agenda of I'm not worthy, right? I am not worthy. That is the, um, the mantra of original sin. Without an I am not worthy, your choices of giving become considered and heartful and soulful and transactive, meaning not just we both benefit, even though we do. It's, it's a transaction that in, invites the soul into the space, not my wounding into the space by transcending my conditions for their condition. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So we here where, where identity honors all the nobility, as you mentioned earlier, in giving, but with no basis of wounding or agenda based in I am not worthy. Metaconditional love is reasonable, not unconditional love. And that makes all the difference in the world, not just philosophically, but in honoring the sacred transaction of giving. So would you say there's an, um, an influence? Sometimes I've gotten this sense that people have a uh, intuitive, if not experienced, sense of universal love, and mm -hmm. that's influencing their desire to transact with that or abide with that universal love, and they use unconditional love as a substitute or a confused sure. notion. Sure, sure. And that's a good point, Joseph, because uh, but that depends on your definition of universal. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems obvious what the definition of universal love is, um, but wait, do you mean, most people would mean if I press them, they would say, well, I love everyone equally, mm -hmm. uh, right? Uh, that's universal love. So, okay, I, I would love to see an example of that in real time, mm -hmm. uh, of, of that definition of universal love. I promise you a person may tell themselves they want to learn to love everyone equally, but they are not loving everyone equally when they espouse their version of universal love. A very simple thought uh, problem would solve that in a moment. Uh, someone is um, robbing a, a woman uh, with a knife under her throat um, and uh, the need of um, that uh, a person who's holding the knife under the throat of the woman uh, and wants money, uh, the need of that person, uh, I don't love that person as equally as I love the, at the moment, the love being brought out for how that feels to have a knife held to the throat of that woman. 
it's not equal in that moment uh, by that person who's holding the knife uh, in this uh, ransom kind of moment, the choice that they made. I don't love them equally. I want to help the woman and disarm the man um, and then hope that the man one day learns uh, that that was not a cool thing to do. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, uh, if universal love is universal, then it would apply in every moment, in every situation. It would be trans-circumstantial. Uh, and I've never met anyone uh, who, if you gave them um, a simple, uh, uh, opposed a problem, a scenario like that, their universal love would go south really quickly, mm. right? Universal love um, is a goal to that's not that's sort of noble, but the only way you get there is well, how we started this conversation by changing the nature of the I who chooses, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to the I itself who makes choices has to change to be able to be capable of something we might call universal love. Um, I, I don't the only universal love I know is uh, from divinity. Um, I don't know. I, I've seen people who have been enlightened, which I want to talk about next uh, as a true thing um, yeah. in terms of soul age. Um, I've seen enlightened people who have no God. There's no self-aware God in their picture, in Zen, uh, pure Zen anyway, and in purer forms of Advaita Vedanta. Uh, there is only this impersonal vastness uh, uh, after enlightenment. I've seen them mysteriously emanate bandwidths of universal love, even though they would claim there's no personal self home and there's no God. Mm -hmm. um, that that's all a function of our, um, our ignorance uh, of how actually consciousness works. So there's a really interesting uh, segue uh, to the truths of of um, of, of uh, uh, Eastern esotericism, because we link it right away here with universal love. When when Ramana, who was coming from that that Ramana Maharshi, uh, when he was coming from this impersonal vastness, uh, identityless being, you could say, which Advaita Vedanta um, holds, uh, uh, he was not conscious of doing any. Thing like a universal love thing. He was too busy being absent in his particular worldview um, that he had attained. Um, uh, he was operating in a way that has no explanation. And so uh, identity can offer the explanation, uh, but the paradigms themselves of Eastern esotericism can't explain why universal love is coming out of an infinite impersonal vastness. Um, mm -hmm. where, what's the algorithm there? Tell me again. Well, um, 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 it's a mystery. Uh, that's, uh, that's basically <laughs> How can that come out of nothingness. Yeah. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, an indefinable, non-intentional, this, this infinite vastness, this impersonal vastness has no intentions. It has and no, no qualities and no, no features, qualities, right. no features, right? Featureless. It's not empty. They don't can't say what it's full of. It's full of nothing, is what Zen would say in some no ways. No thingness. Yes. No thingness, right? Mm -hmm. Not nothing. Uh, Advaita talks about more about nothing, but Zen specifies and parses that's much much cleaner. I yes, think no right. thing, no thingness. So there's no intention for that universal love, yet it is palpable. Ram Dass's teacher, his guru, um, who uh, Ram Dass described as he lives in eternity. Uh, uh, and and that's all this love that comes out of him uh, was was you could so thick you can cut it with a steak knife, mm -hmm. um, and that's what converted Ram Das and got him got him along the enlightenment path. 
But there's no explanation for where that universality of love comes from in the paradigm of his guru. Uh, it's just not in there. Uh, there's no God source of love. There's no intentionality. There's this just fastness. And your right? desire for an explanation, of course, that's just caught up with mental Maya and you know yeah. distraction from the way, of course, right? Sure, that's that's where enlightened uh, gurus. Um, that's their default when they can't explain something. No. It's 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 the seekers. Uh, unenlightened state that's causing the the, the, the question mm -hmm. so so let's talk about that for a moment um uh uh there's a really a beautiful soul um that that uh, wrote a beautiful book called uh, collision with the infinite um the story of suzanne seagal uh not many people know about her but um she sp spoke to this really directly in very clean language much like adi da uh, had had some very clear, clean, simple ways of saying things, which I'm always struggle with myself. Uh, I've got a little more to say than just uh, um, nothingness, uh, no thingness as the essence of everything. Uh, so I've got a little more to say than that. So I'm a little more complex. At any point, um, uh, she speaks directly to the fact that she has uh, uh, has no um, no internal sense of an eye, and that. All there is behind all the facades of everything, the standard Eastern, Eastern uh, talk, uh, is this impersonal vastness that aerates and ventilates an empty space of person, an absence of personal self is the, is the space through which this immense impersonal vastness transacts through this particular um, uh, body-mind, um, as it were. You have to you have to have an absence of personal self for this vastness to move through you and transact uh, through this, the world of conditions. So that's her worldview. And, and she has a beautiful uh, a metaphor that's so elegant. And oh, God, I wish it were true. Oh, I wish it with the bottom of my heart. She, she, she rails against psychologism that says that um, uh, you need to um, work on the personal eye to improve it. Uh, when in the end, it doesn't exist anyway. She makes a real point about this and that psychologism holds us back because, and she is this great metaphor, is the ocean not the ocean, even if it's got seaweed floating in it? <laughs> oh, man. Is that, oh. is that superb? In other words, she sees psychologism as let's clear the ocean of, um, of seaweed. Uh, uh, so that we all can share in the boundless, clear, unpolluted by an eye ocean of impersonal vastness. I had a visceral negative reaction to that metaphor, um, probably um, because I tried that. And um, <laughs> to me, it's like uh, that would work if you didn't have to negativize, disclude and not attend to the seaweed. But that's Gosh, what ends did, up having did, to happen. Where did you learn the priority of that, Joseph? Uh, God, I don't know. <laughs> I, I say I would love to believe that. It would make my job a whole lot easier. Mm -hmm. uh, after my own event, I, I experienced exactly that. Uh, mm -hmm. Just a little different in uh, frame with, with Zen that I wasn't in Advaita Vedanta. Neither was she, by the way. But that's the her, she's articulating the Advaita Vedanta uh, uh, bandwidth a little more than I did. Uh, I felt that. Um, yeah, I heard and, a metaphor similar to that. I, I was told like, um, 
if you you the, the the your psyche and your psychological issues the personal issues that's like furniture in a room that's bolted down to the floor mm-hmm. and you're trying to move the furniture around in the room and you keep bumping into it and it's the room is too small and instead of trying to move the furniture you mm-hmm. knock down the walls and you turn it into an airplane hangar and then you've got all this space mm-hmm. and i tried that and yeah. I found that uh, the furniture is still bolted to the floor. And even if you have a lot more space, that furniture is still there. And all of that space, you could say, is you. So, but the furniture, it's like, you know, I had an Aikido teacher who talked about, uh, gave this metaphor. He said, how little dog shit is in the soup such that you'll still eat it? How about a thimbleful? How about just like, you know, a pinhead? If there's a pinhead amount of dog shit in the soup, will you eat it then? That's mm-hmm. my counter metaphor to that. It's still a problem. <laughs> let, let, let's take it. Let's take that metaphor uh, in another direction. Um, uh, when when the impersonal vastness finds a person, and she maintains and uh, she maintained this till the her dying day, that uh, there was no cause. Uh, there was no cause, uh, and so without a cause. Um, and this happened to her. There's no um, path or or unfolding phasic depth dynamic to her event. It's just she was getting on a bus, re- literally reached up to get on the bus, and it hit her. Later on in the story in the book, she told she talks about how as a child she got all disoriented when she couldn't connect herself to her name. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and when she ever, when she ever, uh, wait, really, wait, am I, my name? I used to hit when I was a kid too, very similar. I write my name, like the nuns taught us how to write them, Joseph. And wait, am I there too? Am, is, is, am I, in, am I there on the paper because my name is on the paper mm-hmm. and I would get all disoriented when I would go a little further into that. Well, there, there's a cause to that. This woman, bless her heart had so many uh, incarnations in the past that she had um, uh, non-dual enlightenments on. Uh, in the reincarnative cycle, uh, this came up this lifetime to, to have it start to access her while she was just a child. She got scared and called it fear and contracted against that um, uh, up until the time that she reached for that bus uh, bus, and then it hit her. Yeah. But but so she is. there was a cause, but that's not a cause that's available to her in her worldview. Well, it's um, also confused by, because the the non-dual, we haven't talked about pre-dual yet, but uh, we'll use them interchangeably at the moment, I guess. The, mm-hmm. Because that by definition was always there, yes. when it takes you, it's not exactly the experience of something new. It's the experience, mm-hmm. I can say from my limited experience of it, my experience was it went from, it was like, oh, this was always in the background and mm-hmm. now it's the foreground. So technically, it didn't have a beginning. So technically, it didn't have a cause. Mm-hmm. Well, it depends again how, uh-huh. how you define uh, sequencing and causation. Yeah, right. Sure. Uh, her worldview is devoid of reincarnation. Uh, uh, oh. There's nothing. There's nothing to reincarnate. You see. Oh dear. Okay. Yes. Uh, there are some versions of Advaita Vedanta that would say that you keep reincarnating until you realize the folly of personal self. And then, then you your drop of the drop, the separate drop that didn't want to become part of the ocean, finally drops into the ocean. Which is in it a powerful and 
uh, negativization uh, of self and being human. Of, right of course, of, it's 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 their version of original sin. Yeah. Eastern es esotericism, original sin, is the ownership of a personal I. Right. It's not bad to be a person. You just want to stop being one as quickly as possible. <laughs> exactly. Zen's a little more severe. Uh, pure Zen that doesn't include reincarnation. Um, only mainstream Buddhism basically has uh, reincarnation into it, and that's uh, way too conditioned and more like a religion, uh, Shinto. Uh, but um, Zen is, is a little more brutal. Uh, you don't get uh, a new innumerable amount of lifetimes like the India traditions before you realize that they're, the drop isn't separate from the ocean and it rejoins it, and there's the obliteration of the personal sense of self. Zen says that happens at the end of one lifetime. In that way, Zen, pure Zen, cosigns uh, Christianity. You've only got one life to get it. There's no life. When you, uh, uh, Gangaji is a beautiful example of this. She, she, someone asked her, well, is there life after death? Well, of course there isn't. Everything goes black. Uh, uh, you are just a construct of cathection of experience, as the Buddha taught us. Uh, the Buddha didn't teach us that, by the way. That's but, so surprising uh, to me that people could be that level of awake and it didn't open their third eye enough such that they could see that kind of stuff. Soul age, which is the bigger meta we're talking about, is the culprit here. Oh. Right. So let's 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 go with that for the moment. So without reincarnation. Um, there's no depth causational possibilities, you see? Uh, uh, um, and so uh, she didn't, uh, I, from what I could understand best reading between the lines, she didn't believe that we have many, many lifetimes, the Suzanne Seagal, um, uh, before we, uh, the drop rejoins the ocean. Um, uh, and so I have to, I, I, my inference, correct or incorrect, is that it's more like Zen that way, that uh -huh. the lights go out at death and that's it. Um, Ram Das struggled with this himself uh, toward the end. Uh, uh, he, he, um, he was resigned to it, but he thought of it as only an acceptance, a challenge to accept it. And it was, it was beautiful and tragic at the same moment. So whether or not, I don't, I don't know exactly, I don't claim to know that if he believed in an afterlife or not, but he certainly didn't speak of it in any sort of um, structural terms, like identity has a whole structure to the uh, in-between incarnational life, what happens. So um, in that one sense, um, I have no credibility. Identity would have no credibility with advanced Eastern, Eastern esotericism. But let's put it in, in the terms of our topic today, Joseph. Um, when all you get as the pinnacle or nadir, depending on how you want to describe it, um, of, your, of a, of a non-dual event where the personal self is no longer retrievable as a sensibility and, and you see through everything through the immense uh, impersonal vastness that takes its place, um, that form of enlightenment is identity offer as well. That's um, uh, an older teen phase version of enlightenment and so um it's is is that f far more advanced and and uh, and um, a, a, a paradigm than fundamental religion of course it is is it is it more sophisticated than even atheism uh humanistic based atheism yes of course it is uh i would like to offer that most of the there's no value there's no meta value system that benchmarks the maturity of cultures 
on this planet very well. The both comes comes out of Wilbur's inter integral picture, but that's a different schemata of development. It's it's about how ego forms and is transcended. It doesn't address so much uh, the cultural the the CQ of any culture. So uh, identity offers a CQ array of the bench it benchmarks how to evaluate the sobriety, the spiritual and emotional sobriety of cultures, including the cultures of religions and Eastern esotericism. So what identity would say is a grown-up more than three or 150 or 400 lifetimes here, if, if non-dual events had happened to them in many lifetimes before, and now they're in their 362nd lifetime, let's say, uh, and they have a non-dual event, it's going to be a, have a different flavor than just impersonal vastness. There's going to be some questions that pop up. Wait a minute. Where does all the seemingly unconditional love come out of depersonalized people? Where does that come from? Uh, it's a mystery. Wait a minute. I don't like that. It's a mystery. I want to explore that question. And don't tell me I'm unenlightened. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, so what you have seems is like a really have, obvious thing to be explored. It's kind of a it big would, deal. It would seem right, um, but what happens is a lot of, and this is where my heart gets so achy, ache, all, all these years since my own event, is that that many times an older soul will enlighten in a teenage paradigm like non-dual Buddhism or non-dual Advaita Vedanta, and be and and get really confused and have to subsume their own doubts about it and suffer greatly when their experience of a non-dual, bona fide non-dual event differs from what the tradition says it should be. And these are the souls that, that identity, um, there's, there's all sorts of psycho-spiritual paradigms out there, waking down and gold, um, um, uh, uh, diamond heart, diamond heart. Diamond. diamond approach, I think they call it now. Yeah, diamond, diamond, let's mm -hmm. see. The hardest mineral known to man, mm. uh, the most non-porous, mm, great mm. metaphor for a, a, a live heart of soul, isn't it? Mm. Um, I just shake my head. I, it doesn't mean they don't have good things to offer a certain fa phase consciousness. But well, anyway, there's a lot of service out there, a lot of paradigms um, for middle age, for teen souls and young adult souls. But I, I identity is is trying to serve a very small population and and maybe save some lifetimes for people in a little younger phases of life uh, of incarnation uh it, it's trying to serve an elder soul need for psycho spiritual growth and uh and and vitality um, and that's all based in emotion not in mind so in 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 point of fact let's pull this to a conclusion that way, an older soul has the ability to have a pre-dual slash non-dual event and see, and here's what something that happened to me, after the, after the event matured and divine beings slammed back into perspective after my event uh, a few months afterward, I clearly saw that there was this horrible, tragic, astonishing reductionism that Eastern esotericism has done in the name of truth, their truth. And that is that um, what gets transcended or obliterated 
in non-dual events is only the mind eye, the dualistically conditioned mind eye. And the mind eye sits on top of, or is a, is a, is, is a, is a downstream version of the soul eye. And that for an elder soul, the, the non-dual event can so erase the identity we built around out of our mind, I think therefore I am in the last five, 500 years or so, um, what happens is after that goes away, the soul eye finally has oxygen to breathe through the being. And the soul eye is connected to our seed God eye in divinity. That was my experience um, after the event when the God field, <laughs> which I would call the Christu now, um, uh, I used to call it the Logo Christa. It's now the Christu as I gotten to know it better. That's what it calls itself. Um, uh, uh, slam backed in. Um, I realized that, again, all the teachings out there in Eastern Esotericism, which tends to be the top end, seen as the ultimate attainment of consciousness on this planet. That's what it's sold as, the ultimate attainment. There's nothing higher, more attained than that, is simply a phase-specific, older teen way of um, relating to the play out of a non-dual event. So one's truth here again, all identity is offering, it's offering its truths, not as an end game attainment, but as an unfolding asymptote mm -hmm. of, of emoto soulful goodness and expression. So it doesn't hold itself absolute any of its truths, as we've said so many times, it simply offers for self-validation and by and large, I wish this weren't true, but in my experience so far, only older, elder souls can get this self-verified, can have their, these truths self-verified. Uh, uh, um, cultures and teachings that are functions of, of very young souls, like religions are, um, atheism, more mid-teen, tween, um, esoteric Eastern uh, is older uh, teen and young adult. Um, and that's where the buck stops for to most of the top end. To what degree can a uh, younger soul speed up the process of their own evolution? I've been asked that in innumerable forms mm -hmm. over the over the years. Yours is right and decisive to that. The best I could answer today, which might have a different answer tomorrow, mm -hmm. uh, but um, based in the same paradigm without obviating the paradigm, um, is that uh, the one thing they could learn is that that um, the first thing to learn, depending on the age, is there's no such thing as original sin. Mm -hmm. And if any religion that holds that down line unavoidably worships a false god. Okay, For a little middle-aged soul, um, not middle-aged, um, younger teen to older teen, I would offer that... Um, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, be curious how there might be a divinity, not the God that you rightly rejected, but there might be something other that you might learn to connect to, but don't believe it. Don't believe it. Identity can maybe show you some ways to have that self-verified. And to those who are enlightened and embody um, the, uh, the final uh, solution, as it were, which enlightenment is, for most teachers, for Eckhart Tolle it certainly is, um, for Gangaji it certainly is, for the Suzanne Segal it certainly was, but an, a beautiful exception is Adyashanti, who suffers terribly in some ways in my read of him, 
because, because he can't go, he, he's not stringently absolute like a lot of these teachers are. He's a little older. He's a young, mm -hmm. he's older, younger, he's older, young adult. And he's tortured someplace in him, which is why he's, he's exhausted. Mm -hmm. He can't fit in a greater soul source for his ache that causes him to deal with it every day, every day on the unconscious and makes him exhausted. He can't fit himself into the fully into the non-dual perspective. And so I admire and respect the man greatly, uh, even though I don't think I could help him. So it depends what your question is so vital and so real and identity is looking for ways. Bree has found ways to help younger souls that I could never imagine. But it turned out that they were, looked like they were younger souls, but they weren't. Yeah, <laughs> you see. Yeah, so it's yeah. a it's a tough call here. Um, would would someone who believes um, in original sin be able to cast off their false god easily? I wouldn't want to. I, I, wait, that's right for their phase specific orientation. But, but just I mean, yeah, like you'd say, uh, can a um, can a eight year old or no, can a four year old tell the difference between the short fat glass of water and the tall thin one? Like, uh -huh. it yes. seems to be at a certain phase between, I don't know, whatever it is. I think it's uh, between mm -hmm. by like eight or nine years old, they figure that out. So, mm -hmm. like, if you gave them careful instruction, could they get it at age seven instead of having to wait to eight and a half? Yeah. Maybe. Well, it's sort of like, but, like, it, would it be it, too it, strong an intervention and violent in a way to try to change and, that? And, yeah, and this is why... I, uh, I would never try to change the mind who of anyone who thought that they had absolute truth. Mm. So, so the meta answer to your question is there's no way to help anyone without meta curiosity about their belief system. Mm -hmm. If they don't have, if they don't have meta curiosity about their belief system, there's a chance a bit of identity's guidance could save them a dozen lives here or a dozen lives there. Uh, that's all it can do is really for younger souls is save them time so they're more effectively directed in their picture of things. If there's no reincarnation, if it's a born-again Christian, um, there's no such thing as reincarnation and it's heaven, hell, or purgatory if you're you know, in between somewhere. Well, I, I'm not sure you'd have to have doubt about that before I could um, identity could, could help you. So this is why I learned along many years ago, Joseph, that um, identity wasn't going to change the world. Mm. Uh, and so as it is, uh, but it, it's trying to plant seeds for a future world, as you so beautifully put so many times in different metaphors. Mm. So again, we're not trying to sell identity with these podcasts. We're trying to offer that there's a meta architecture to consciousness that's not in religionism, obviously not in atheism or strict humanism, and certainly not in, uh, in, in uh, advanced Eastern esotericism. There's a depth structure to consciousness that the world has not yet discovered, and identity hopes to maybe make that happen a thousand years sooner than it would have had otherwise hmm. for most people. Well, that seems like a good place to close. Amen. Um, yeah, it's, it's something that is heavy on my heart and mind very often of just like, how to speed up the process. Yes, people have to go through what they've got to go through to learn, but certainly none of us make all of our mistakes on our own. We are able to learn from other people's mistakes. There must be some way that it could be shortened. 
because uh, it doesn't look so good for the human race at the moment. And I see this race between our own evolution and our own self-destruction is sort of what's yeah. constantly happening. Yeah. I often look at um, the human condition right now and just the domain of uh, the earth and climate. Um, it's a think of a big aquarium tank, uh, aquarium tank, and there's a thousand people in it, and they're all shitting and um, urinating into it, and uh, the shit and the urination is filling up, uh, uh, destroying all the the plant and stuff in the uh, and air and water uh, and living beings uh, other than humans in the planet, and pretty soon the shit and the urine is going all the way to the top of the aquarium. And their heads are above water going, what happened? What happened? What happened? Why are we in this mess? Um, there, we are, even in our belief systems, we're defecating and urinating with limited consciousness access to what it is we are. The personal I has a whole other definition and identity than it does in any other of these phases of uh, soul development. So, Without soul age and the parameters that then um, have, are, have effects out of that, the world is stuck in that aquarium, bounded by belief systems uh, and you know, no curiosity about their veracity. So, mm. sober note. A sober note. Thanks for um, asking that last question because it put everything in, in right relationship, right context to what we said today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're welcome, Stace. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And oh, uh, oh, what, wait. One before you go to close, can I offer one more thing? Please. One, one more thing. Someone asked, asked me recently, what's the best way I can get in touch with the living God or the divinity, whatever you want to call it, divine being, we call it. Um, and I, and I give them a completely counterintuitive answer, and it fits right with what, what you just ended on. I have to say it. Objectless sorrow. Mm. If you want to get in touch with divinity, you don't have to go just to objectless love, as often the case uh, teachers uh, will give. Objectless sorrow is as big a, a function of divine beings consciousness as objectless as love. It is so in sorrow over watching from its omnipresence, but not its omniscience or its omnipotence, what human beings are choosing to do, and all choices are, are sculpted by our belief systems, and our belief systems are so enclosed and out of touch with the reality of things. If you want to get in touch with the reality of divine being, contemplate sorrow and try to connect to the sorrow of divinity, who, from where it sits, human beings are incapable of sin. Mm -hmm. They're only capable of learning. No sin, identity's divine being, there's no sin, there's only stuck consciousness. So sorrow, we end on a down note, but that down note I just wanna recast as an intrinsic bandwidth of divine consciousness. Not the only one, mm -hmm. but one that's so often overlooked. Yeah, one of the easiest ones to avoid, surely, because it doesn't, I mean, I yeah, I was gonna say it doesn't feel good, but um, it actually does. It, do um, it does. It's, it's the, not depression, it's a very No, sorrow, sorrow is the heart and soul of, de uh, of, of um, compassion. Yeah. 
yeah. compassion-based sorrow, not shame-based um, uh, 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 unhappiness or depression. Uh, it's, it's compassion in action. That's what sorrow is. Mm. It's an acceptance of what can't be different, but you don't just say, well, I can't change it, so I'm not going to dwell on it. That's such a cowardly thing to do. And I say that again softly. Mm. Only cowards, uh, I don't want to dwell on something that I can't change. It sounds so practical. I'm sorry, you've got to color outside the lines of your belief system here. Mm. So it is, sorrow feels really good because it connects you to everything. Mm. Okay. okay. Thank Thanks for letting me interrupt your closure. Not at all. That was okay. perfect. All right. Well, uh, yeah, thank you, Stace, and thank you for listening, and uh, hope you'll tune in next time when we'll be talking about God maybe doesn't even know what. So, <laughs> oh, it does. It's, it, it, it's now is um, several hundred years, I think. Okay, yeah. So that's uh, inside of, yeah, it knows. Yeah, it, we'll find it, out. Uh, we'll find out, yeah. It, mm -hmm. it return, it's now is a lot bigger than ours, so. Okay. We'll see. All right. Well, bye Thank for you, now. Joseph. Yeah, you're so welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. To learn more about Stace Barron and Identity, please visit identity.org. To learn more about Joseph Shapiro, visit clearandopen.com. Until next time, we wish you well on your journey.